Paxton Quigley is rolling out the green carpet, talking to the creme de la creme of innovators and influencers who are shaping the world of cannabis and culture. Welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. And welcome to High Society with Paxton Quigley. I host the Blunt Business Program here on Cannabis Radio, and we're doing a special edition today. Because with many of our programs here on Cannabis Radio, we never get the opportunity and never enough within any episode, any given episode, or any given series of interviews where we get to learn about our hosts. And so on Blunt Business, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of our hosts and give you a chance to go ahead and really look inside the career of and the career and pastime experiences of our hosts, which are very diverse, wide ranging. And Paxton is no exception. She's very much. Uh, not even close to being an exception. There's just such a fascinating story that I know that a lot of our listeners hear, and I will say that I'm going to post this on our Blunt Business program, that you know when I learned about the fact that getting the chance to produce this show and learning of all the things that Paxton had done in her career leading up to the story today, I'm sure a lot of you are going to be surprised and amazed and really uh, fascinated about what we're going to learn. So with that said, the host of our program is the author of the best-selling women's self-defense book series that includes Armed and Female, not an easy target, Armed and Female in an Unsafe World and Armed and Female Taking Control, and most recently her novel, Just Try Me. But it was one thing where working uh, in, in books and other things that she's done in her career that led her all the way into the cannabis industry with us, hosting High Society for the past year and a, a year and a third as we've been doing this. So... Paxton, thanks for being on, and thanks for giving us the opportunity to basically do This Is Your Life. Good. Well, I don't know if it's my life, but I think we can have fun talking about uh, some of the people that uh, I, I've been involved with. I lived in California for uh, quite a number of years, and even though people think that California is bigger, Los Angeles is, is big, it really isn't, and it, it turns out you can really meet a lot of people, and there's a lot of connections going on there, and so it's, it, it's a nice way to, shall we say, develop a career. And I think I had a couple of careers when I was in, in, in uh, L.A. before I came to New York. I absolutely. Uh, so with that said, I want to go and get into things with you because there is so much to work on. And the first thing we've got to talk about is what was really notable in your professional career is we're going to focus on specifically. So prior to authoring books, you worked uh, as a director in community relations for Playboy Enterprises. Yes, the Playboy in Los Angeles for five years. You reported to Hugh Hefner and his daughter, Christy. And you were there at Playboy in the heyday of the brand. The cable network had just started up not too long after that. The magazine at the time, five million readers monthly talk to me about how you embrace this icon of the counterculture which is what cannabis really is itself it is countercultural playboy is lockstep with that talk to me about embracing the icon and also working with an iconic figure like like Hugh Hefner well working with both I should say Hugh Hefner and his daughter was absolutely incredible experience uh, they happened to be friendly people uh, they, they like to work with the people who they have and find out about them. And so they can kind of craft what, uh, what that person can do. And uh, I'd like to tell the story of how I started at Playboy because it was pretty amazing for me at least. 
Yeah. I was uh, prior to that. I was I was writing a lot of, a lot of uh, magazine articles. I used to be a, a journalist, and uh, I had written some pretty I have to say sexy uh, uh, articles uh, in 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 various magazines, especially Chic magazine, which was owned by Larry Flint. And uh, I wrote one article about what what do women write on bathroom walls? Uh, now these days, women don't write on bathroom walls, but then they did. And you should hear some of the things they would say about guys and themselves. It was pretty amazing. And then I wrote an article about incest, and it was actually one of the uh, one of the first articles to to um, come out about incest and and what's really happening out there. And I ended up actually. Uh, talking uh, to some people who had incest, uh, incest, I should say, incest with um, wow. with their daughters. It, it, it was that in depth and w was quite am amazing. And then uh, I did um, some other articles for New West Magazine and Valley Magazine. And all of a sudden, one day, um, I get a call from uh, the Valley newspaper. And uh, they say, uh, we've been reading about you uh, and we like what you're doing. Uh, we'd like you to become our editor. And I said, editor, really? Wow. I said, well, I've never done that. And they said, uh, yeah, we'd like you. And I said, well, do I have to move to the Valley? Because I lived in Beverly Hills. <laughs> right. And they said, no, no, you can, you can stay where you're, where you're at. And uh, uh, I said, okay, and, and became a, a, a Valley correspondent, so to speak. And then uh, things really started to 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 come come together. There were more and more people that um, knew about me. And all of a sudden, I got a call one day from a headhunter who said, uh, "We're very interested in in talking with you because we have a a, a client that uh, we think is interested in you." And so I went to meet them, and they told me it was Playboy. Uh, the company and I was like shocked and they said but one thing we we need you to do is you're going to have to go to uh, first of all do you, do you agree to to uh, to work at Playboy because there are some women who would never even want to work at Playboy because of of the so-called reputation and and you know the the bunnies and the playmates and all that kinds of stuff and I said no no I'm really interested in doing uh, something like that and so I um I uh, went out to Chicago because that was where the headquarters was, and that was where Christy Hefner was. Mm -hmm. And I, it was like a—it's like magic for me. Um, I was meeting her for lunch at about eleven o'clock um, in the morning, which is really strange that she wanted to meet me at eleven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And uh, I, I walked around the Drake Hotel, and which is on Michigan Avenue, and I looked across the street. And there is a furrier that's called Vogue Furriers. And my father had worked at Vogue Furriers as a young, young man. And when I saw that, I, you know what I said what? to myself? You got the job. Because somehow, to me, it was like magical that here I should walk around and there's the, there's a, the place where Irony. my father had worked. It was one of his first jobs. Yeah. And yeah. I went up there and um, I talked to, with, with Christy and we had a really good conversation. And she talked about the mansion. And uh, I wouldn't be working at the mansion, but in the main office in Los Angeles. 
and she, you know, she was feeling me out in terms of, uh, you know, sex and all that, not, not in a heavy duty sort of way. And, and she just wondered, she said, you, would you be um, okay and feel comfortable being around playmates uh, and, and bunnies and also a lot of, um, of actors and actresses, well-known actors and actresses? And I said, yeah, <laughs> no problem. But now, it's uh, basically, what we want to make the point of, Absolutely, we know what Playboy is to the mainstream culture. What everybody looks at, everybody recognizes for. But what you did there, you were a corporate director of community relations with the goal of promoting the positive side of Playboy and the Playboy Foundation. And one of the things that also counter that really was in lockstep was the fact that your that that Playboy was always in quite a number of philanthropic activities, and they had a long-standing relationship with Normal. And of course, we talked with Keith Strop here on the program. And the fact that Playboy had been a regular contributor, giving up $100,000 a year for seven years at one point, and doing it, it was just about the money, not the centerfolds. And the fact that Playboy, because of the appeal, they were able to put a spotlight on various organizations and various causes that really reached, as I said, a counterculture. The people that wanted to see the war on drugs you know, be abolished and the coverage being done by Playboy. They were multifaceted in supporting various causes that we we are heralding today. Well, and the situation was that a lot of people uh, would come to our big events and even uh, even pay money because uh, it was Playboy. Yep. Uh, yes, yeah, I re I remember the first the first day uh, and and the first I should say the first night uh, when I was uh, was there, uh, I wasn't even told about what was happening at the Playboy Mansion that night. Chrissy said to me, uh, "We got a fa fundraiser tomorrow night, and we'd love you to come. You got to come." I said, "Okay," and I walked in. And there were, it was really interesting, a lot of scantily dressed women, a lot of guys, and what was it? But it was um, norm, a normal party, National Organization to Reform Marijuana Laws, and everyone was smoking. And it was like, it, it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. So, so they, were, they were able to do a lot of these kinds of things um, that were, you know, a, not current in terms of, of of our society and actually bring it out the next night they had another they had another uh, a fundraiser and I could go to that one and what is it it's to support the legalization of prostitution there was actually there's an actual organization that's based in San Francisco and that's what they've been trying to do for years and years and years mm -hmm. and again the place was just loaded with people and people wanted to come there sometimes because of, of, of what was happening there but also just to be there because there were people that would say to me and because I, and, I talked to people about you know, why are you here and all that it made them feel sexy it was really interesting it it it, it uh, just just being there and then walking around in the mansion and then going out to the grotto uh and 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 just uh there were peacocks around and there was even a little zoo and 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 there was a freedom there you could just walk around and and and, and pick up this this very sexy vibe 
And it was both, in the end, it's not only men that felt sexy, but women that felt sexy. And I remember uh, I'd always take a date. I could get a date with anybody, any man. <laughs> all, when they heard I was, that I was inviting them to a, a party at the mansion, they didn't even care what was going on there. They just wanted to go to the Playboy Mansion. That, that was how hot the place really was. There is never enough I could say to what uh, Hugh Hefner and Playboy had contributed to society. And, and how we don't have that now, and it's so unfortunate, but you got to be there at such a pivotal time. And to think the kind of passion and the, and the level of support that they branched out to, that actually really encompasses what you've done since. I mean, in the charitable sense, let's go to that point. You work with Robert Wagner, the actor, uh, as a promotional director for two years for the Jimmy Stewart National Relay Marathon in Santa Monica, California. You talked about the being editor-in-chief of the Valley Magazine in Sherman Oaks and chairing your family foundation, Pathways to Success from School to Work at University of Chicago. And you're on the board of trustees of Institute for Career Development in New York City. So there's a lot of charitable efforts. Uh, because of what you saw, you know, in, in just uh, did something where you saw the kind of branching out and the, the, the advocacy and the philanthropic efforts that Playboy made, is that something that kind of just resonated on you and that's why you put yourself out there and branch yourself out to so many different organizations as much as you could? Well, you know what? It goes back to my, my family life. My parents were, were very political people and uh, they were involved in a lot of different uh, organizations, giving away money, uh, being on boards and all that. So I was grown, grown, I grew up with that kind of atmosphere, that that was something that you did and you, you would do it because you wanted to do it and you wanted to, to help whether it was people or what an organization was doing. And so for me, uh, to be out there like that was was um, something that, as I said, uh, became natural. Uh, I guess the most interesting thing was that there were all different types of things that uh, I, I I've been on and can you know continue to this day that are, are you know somehow so different because uh, at the University of Chicago, my uh, family foundation, uh, I was a, I. I graduated from uh, University of Chicago with a master's degree, and my father went there and and uh, loved it there and gave uh, a, a great deal of money to University of Chicago. And his aim there was a very serious aim of helping uh, underprivileged uh, children uh, get a good education. I mean, and uh, we've supported a lot of different uh, professors' work uh, and also different organizations in the community. So, uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of ways that one can go in terms of um, almost being a, a, a big person in terms of, of giving of yourself. And, uh, and as I said, that's the way I was brought up, to give, to give. And of course, I was fortunate that my father was able to, to give a great deal of money to the University of Chicago. And uh, once in a while, I'll look up in the heavens and say, "Look, Dad, look what's going on. <laughs> what, what you've been able, what you've been able to do." And um, and a lot of that also. And that's why working at Playboy and being involved in in the Playboy Foundation and and the organizations that that they 
supported. It, it was like I was home again in a way. I, so I, I knew what to do. You know, I, I should say I know what to do. I, I, you know, I needed help uh, many times, but it, it was easy. And I'd have to call up celebrities and ask them, would you be interested to be a, uh, you know, a, one of the people who was helped supporting the organization and rarely did I ever get somebody when they heard the name Playboy say no I won't do it wow. I was really surprised because uh Christy had warned me she said you know there are a lot of people out there uh, there are a lot of people out there pardon me a lot of people out there that uh um don't like Playboy and you could you could find yourself uh, uh, being you know actually blackballed in certain places. Uh, I was lucky that none of that that ever happened. As a matter of fact, I got more friends and and people from organizations that I didn't even think would would want to go to Playboy. Um, even even the religious religious people that would, it, it shocked me. So uh, you know it, I've just it, it's been part of my life to somehow. Be involved with with um, helping people. But you've also towed that line because, like you said, there are areas where in area various um, in various causes and various things you've gone into. There's always the consequence of being put into spots where people are going to be polarized by what you support. And you've navigated oh, yes. that so well. I want to just make one I, thing I, before we, before we move along, because I want to ask now about another area that's very much of a passion of yours that our audience does not know about. But I want to just make a point that because of the charitable work, the way you give back, I always think of the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, about when you get to the successful level, about how important it is that of the success you make that you give back, that you have to be giving and you have to be able to go ahead and give to, to causes that are passionate to you and i always take that point that if, if for all of you out there that, that's one thing to always to make sure of is that you got to give back you can't just take and take there's got to be some way that you are very charitable of yourself and that you are offering back you know the the, the riches of sex if it's not just money if it's the advice if it's the consulting you're able to do the expertise you can give that's something you do in your passion for self-defense advocacy. Now, you've done over 300 interviews. I'm trying to do the best just to be at the top 1% of those interviewers that you've oh, had. You are. You are. You are. <laughs> uh, for Charlie Rose to Bill Maher to Pierce Morgan. I want to be higher at that level because I think I'm a better interviewer anyway, but that's just my point. Uh, Daily Beast, they spoke with to you uh, back in 2012. And they, you remember the moment you decided to get a gun. You said, quote, your words, it was more than two decades ago when a female friend in L.A. called one late one late one night with some terrible news. A stranger had broken into her home through a bathroom window. She had called 911, but the police had arrived too late. And after our after hour an hour a half hour after a brutal rape, and then you asked your friend, "quote If you had a gun, do you think you could have stopped the attacker?" And she said, "Yes." So you've all. I want to just go through. This is quite a bit of context, but. To understand your passion of self-defense, let's just go through everything. So we mentioned the best-selling books. You were also briefly a bodyguard to well-known public figures. You, a bodyguard, also taught <laughs> 7,000 women. That's a lot of women. How to shoot a handgun for self-defense. That's, that's, a, that's a true 
accomplishment. I have an army out there. I have an army. <laughs> amazing. I saw a picture actually on that Daily Beast article of you right there. The the pose was amazing. And you did your own training at the top U.S. schools, including the Executive Security International, Lethal Forces Institute, and Gunside Academy. And you were a spokesperson for Smith and Wesson. You designed a handbag with a holster for your book, Armed and Female Taking Control. You talked to dozens of survivors of violence and sexual assault. And collectively, you said, when you spoke to those victims, you said, they are survivors. They could have stopped the attack with a gun. So the direction this made in your life, from personal accounts that were given to you, to you saying, I'm going to do something about it. Yes. Well, um, what happened with my girlfriend really, really affected me because she's 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 been a friend of mine since uh, mm. I've been like 18 years old, and uh, and and seeing what she looked like, and I was afraid that she would never recover. And when I talked to her about getting a gun, at first she said no, 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 and I said, well, you know, we got to find some some way for you to learn how to shoot a gun, and she was really fearful. And then I started. I, it started interesting, interesting for me to about women and and self defense and, and and the whole you know idea of women owning guns for self defense. I always thought of you know guns as a guy thing, and I started doing research, and uh, and this is going back to the uh, late eighties, um, uh, and um, there were at that point statistics that said that 12 million American women owned guns for self-defense. And I couldn't believe that. Now, the one thing, the problem they had with those figures, then in some cases, they didn't actually own it, but it was in the house and there maybe their husband had it. But, but to know that there were 12 million women who had access, I was, I was really shocked because I came from a, a liberal anti-gun family. I was an anti-gun person. But when I saw what happened to my, my, my girlfriend, I said, you know, something is, is, is wrong with this picture. It's, it's got to be changed. And I started doing more and more research. And I then looked around, and there was not one book written about women and guns. Lots of books about, uh, you know, men and guns and, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and guys, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to myself, I'm going to write a book about women and guns. And I got to tell you, I didn't know a thing about guns, except I had to go ahead and learn how to shoot. And I went to a private range and uh, they gave me a 38 special. Yep. And they, they basically showed me what to do. And I shot the gun. Uh, I, I did pretty well. I was first really scared when they put the gun down. It was the first time I even saw a gun. It was a revolver and they had the action open. When you have the action open, the action is where you put the bullets. Yeah. And okay. I said to them, uh, and, sh and the person said, pick up the gun. I said, I I'm not going to pick up that gun. Uh, it it, it wow. could go off. I actually thought that it could go off. That's yeah. how, how, how dumb I was. And I learned how to shoot. And I got to tell you, when I got home, I walked around my living room and I was like, by the hands on my hips. And I said, hey, I know how to shoot a gun. I know how to shoot a gun. And um, I started calling friends. And they got really angry at me. And they said, you don't go out and buy a gun. You can't have a gun. And I said, what are you talking about? And I'm not going to get a gun right away. I'm going to learn how to shoot and, and, and then do it. Well, 
I stopped calling my friends because everybody was negative about it. Yeah. And uh, but I said to myself, I don't know. I got a story here. Uh, I think it's got to be told. And um, I, I I read a lot of books, put together uh, a, a chapter or two, and um, I started to, to, to send it out to various uh, agents. And um, I got an agent. And um, there was a very important person in my life really, really helped me. Uh, he was an editor at um, the editor at, at Simon and Schuster, and he liked the book a lot. Uh, it like, well, it was not, a, it wasn't a book then. He liked my idea, and he said, you know, I'd love to publish my, this book. He said, but uh, my staff would turn it down. My board would turn it down. He said, but I know somebody that I think will take it, and that's St. Martin's Press. And I went to St. Martin's Press, and they said, yep, we're going to do it. Wow. And from there, it started a whole chain of events of talking to people and all that. And I ended up taking these courses that you can't even imagine are, are out there. And one of them was a bodyguard <laughs> class, how to be a bodyguard and what you do when you're a bodyguard and all that. And so um, after my book came out, I decided I would do some bodyguard work. And just, to, you know, I had all this training and um, um, I talked around to a lot of people. I, obviously, I knew a lot of people. And someone had told me that uh, Yoko Ono was, uh, was looking for a bodyguard for some uh, oh, event she was doing. No and would I and i said sure oh my god so let me let me pull this let me circle this back okay so you had blowback you had those who were totally against close friends acquaintances absolutely said why are you doing this why would you even consider holding onto a gun with and even the thought of you saying that oh if i hold the gun i might blow up i might do something it might just trigger itself I almost feel that way too because I have not handled many guns myself. I can understand that. I don't think you're in the you're in uh, you're alone in that thought at the time, but you did it. And then the way you got someone from Simon and Schuster, one of the aforementioned book publishers in the world, and even though so he support he or she supported it, but they said well, I can't do it, but I'm going to help you find somebody that can. That's incredible, and it's just all those coincidences coming together plus the thing is you didn't hold back you didn't say well i'm not going to listen to what they're saying hey all due respect i know what i'm doing here and you went with it and you went all in on this cause that's incredible yeah i went all in and um i did it for a number of years uh, i would go around the uh, country uh, what happened is that Smith and Weston heard about me, and again, it's another call I got out of the blue, and said wow. we'd like to talk to you about uh, uh, being our, uh, you know, I don't know how they they put it at the time, but to be a spokesperson for Smith and Wesson for yeah. women owning guns, and um, and uh, they said we're we'd like to send a ticket uh, to you to come to to um, uh, Massachusetts and meet the people here mm -hmm. and, uh, and you know, talk with us and see if we can make a, a match. I ended up being a spokesperson for Smith & Wesson for seven years. Uh, and, and, um, and then um, it, it got to the point that it, it, was, it wasn't that it was getting boring, but I, I, I wanted to do something 
something else. And uh, they were not doing as, as well as, as they were before. But the one thing that they did do is they said to, to me, we are going to make, uh, make a gun and we're going to name it after you and call it the PAX. Wow. And it's a 38 special. I don't have it here or I would show it to you. <laughs> right, a 38 right. special um, 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 uh, snub nose gun. And it's, it's, it's a small gun. And um, I, I, I said, hey, great, thank you. But then I got perturbed with them because they only gave me number one number two not number one i said why can't i have model one you know the first right, one because right. it always has a number <laughs> the they said no we keep the model ones uh you get the model two oh, but come on and it's it's you yeah got, you I, got a, a gun commission by smith and wesson that's incredible right. all right right uh, so uh, with uh, and we're gonna by the way wait, i gotta tell Go you something sure sure you can still buy it today. It, it's on the market. Oh. Actually, I met somebody, and when I told him my name, he says, oh, he said, I just bought that gun for my daughter. <laughs> That's great. That's amazing. More High Society with Paxton Quigley coming up after we hear from our privileged sponsors. The cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. The, the Green, Green Peak, Peak with Richard Zwicky. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at S-H-O-O-G-I-E-S dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Paxton Quigley is back talking to the connoisseurs of cannabis and culture on High Society, only on CannabisRadio.com. You've always found yourself in, you obviously have always been passionate in causes that are not in the mainstream. I mean, we're talking about niche uh, businesses where, I mean, in, in, with the radio network, we've done kind of the same thing, where we do look at industries that will have a polarizing effect, that will have some kind of a... A typecast or a stereotype being given, a stigma, if you will. That's what you had when it came to the adult industry working with Playboy, what you had in your passion working for self-defense and gun ownership, which, by the way, gun ownership, I wanted to make the stat here, 20 million female gun owners in the U.S. and one out of every five gun owners is, is, a, is a female. Just want to make that point yes. too. But no, but the only thing, it it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I, I read... <laughs> further on that a lot of them uh it, it might be the one gun in the house with the you know husband and wife Correct. mother or father and and so it the gun may not be registered under her name oh no but uh, well this story what i'm talking about from here are 20 million that purchased the handguns themselves so the actual sure? themselves really that they that, purchased that i didn't correct this is the latest one i wow. found from a, a survey that was in the website thewellarmedwoman.com and they're a membership training organization for women gun owners. They're the ones that found this study. So I found that part. Owning 
and buying the guns themselves. I, now, that, that surprises me because I've heard other figures, but that's great that 20 million women are owning guns. I mean, the bad guys that, and bad women who are out there, right. uh, they should know those figures. 20 million is a lot. That's quite a bit. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move along to present day and your affiliation with the industry. So you're a co-partner. There's so much. Uh, I couldn't do it. If I did the bio with you, Pax, in the beginning, we wouldn't have started the interview yet. Let's just say it like that. So <laughs> Thank you. I had to spread it out. Now, let's uh, say this. Now, you're a co-partner with the oldest existing natural food supermarket in the U.S., Country Sun, based in Palo Alto, California, you know, Stone's Throw from Stanford uh, University. Now, you've added CBD products to the shelves, and I wanted yes. to know about the response. And this is one of the early points where your, your entry into the cannabis industry, CBD obviously is also in that part, but now talk to me about the fact that, you know, normally we hear about dispensaries and a lot of their stores coming out there, but CBD products should really go hand in hand in an organic food market. Yes. Well, I had called up um, uh, cannabis products are really uh, going like gangbusters and we should have them in the store. And my partner said to me, no, no, we can't have that in our store. You know, our, our business is going to go down. And I said, I said, no, as a matter of fact, it's going to go up. Well, I finally convinced him. I said, let's try it. Let's try it for a couple of months. And if it doesn't work, then I'm wrong. But if it works, uh, this could be good. Well, I have to tell you, after two months, our sales in the store went up by, up by 20%. <laughs> and what was the reason? It was CBD. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You don't like so the word no. You don't like being told you can't. <laughs> I know, and sometimes I get in trouble because I, <laughs> I got to be careful when I say no. <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow. So I gotta, I gotta tell you this. This is a surprise. Only uh, uh, Maureen, who helps to go ahead and you know, the, the uh, script supervision helps to write up the show and helps to do all the booking and all the coordination of the show. Executive producer, if you will. You don't know this yet, Paxton. I'm gonna tell you this right now. You're the first time you're hearing this. Celebstoner.com. They just named High Society with Paxton Quigley as one of the top 60 cannabis and drug-themed podcasts. I bet you didn't know Wow. That. No. It's been on the list. Thank just you. put it out there. Yeah. Wonderful uh, wow. commendation. Oh. So I want to ask you about the show. I want to transition to it. And talk to me about some of the takeaways that you've gotten here doing radio at some point. Because originally you did terrestrial radio. And you were doing an empowerment hour. And then you transitioned into cannabis and you did it for a while terrestrially and then came with us here for the past year plus in the cannabis radio what have you taken away so far from the interviews and the experience and just learning about the industry itself well it's a very friendly industry to say the least and accommodating and uh, of course uh, the industry wants as, as much publicity as possible, and I think they like the idea that here is a, a, a you know, a grown-up woman who is coming out positively about uh, uh, cannabis uh, legalization of marijuana, and I, 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 I think uh, they've felt good about that, and I've gotten good response. And of course, uh, the next step was also uh, to meet uh, physicians uh, and researchers who have been doing this work for the last number of years and uh, realizing that this is a real burgeoning uh, uh, area uh, in the United States. And uh, 
if one reads the newspapers or magazines, you can see that millions and millions of dollars are, are being made. And, and, and the nicest thing about it is cannabis is such a wonderful plant. Uh, it only does good. Um, yeah. I don't think it, it does bad. And, and so uh, it's, uh, um, it, it's marvelous to be working in the cannabis industry. It really is. You found the positivity in every aspect of where you've worked at professionally. That's where it comes down to because you find it, it's, it's much like you did at Playboy, you're showcasing the positive side of cannabis. And, ha and that's, that's really what it comes down to. It, was it kind of a calling when you felt like, you know, because of what you've done? And this is another area, this industry needs my help. They need my voice. They need the kind of, um, well, it really, I'd say it with all kind of stubbornness to not let anybody say no or to shut down what this industry is doing, all the good it's doing, that you felt like there was a calling for you to also put your voice into this into the discussion. Yes, yes, because I really, uh, really um, for not so much, uh, shall we say, marijuana and getting high, the fact that this plant uh, was so in a way life-giving and, and, and could help so many people. And we're just at the beginning of, of this. I mean, we're, every, every day or you know, every week, there's a, another study that's coming out uh, on, on some aspect of, of, of what the plant can do. And, and when you think about it, it's, it's basically almost a weed. People, that's why it's called weed, uh, because for so many years, uh, you know, only people who knew what to do with the weed uh, would smoke it. So it's, it's like, it is, it's a magical plant. And there's just so many different entities that are trying to push back and hold down this industry. Because if the amount of money can be put out there for research, to truly research what can be done in terms of a number of different ailments and a number of different symptoms that are out there for people that we know that big farmers intimidated by it. They're, they're, they're frightened. So is a big tobacco, big alcohol. There's all these different industries that are playing so hard to try to hold this industry down. And we need more people like you, Paxton, to come in steadfast, strong, brave, courageous to take on who's out there that is saying, you know, that's trying to put this, to put the, the stigma out and try to basically just snuff out the industry altogether. That's kind of extreme, but really it feels like that. Well, thank you. But, you know, it's interesting uh, that I, I, I get calls from people. Uh, I, I talk to people and tell them what I'm doing, and they, they are now all interested. They want to know more. And I get calls. I had, a, I had a call two days ago from a friend of mine. She says, I just got this product, and I got to tell you, I, it stopped the pain in my neck. I can sleep now at night. Yeah. And this woman, you know, a year ago, she wouldn't touch it. And I had said to her, why don't you? Just try it, try it. Mm -hmm. And finally, she tried it and it works. And I, you know, literally two days ago, she called me to thank me. So um, I feel good about that. Yeah. I really do. And I, I think we have, a, you know, still a long way to go. Uh, I, I'm hoping that uh, President Biden will uh, loosen up his, his, his ideas about what cannabis is all about and realize that it is a medicinal plant and can help, uh, it can help save the world yeah. to some extent. Now, overall, when you hear the ongoing discussion of subjects in the cannabis industry, when you look at it from a, 
an overall view, a world view, what are some of the areas you feel like that should be prioritized in your opinion? What are some of the areas that do not get enough discussion? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, we never hear I enough think... when it comes about the effect that cannabis has for children. And I never hear enough. I mean, we've, we've seen where uh, Sanjay Gupta and CNN did the, uh, the series they did on, on, on cannabis a while back. And you don't hear enough about the patients that are overcoming and the kind of things that we have where we're learning about the benefits. And you don't hear enough testimonials from patients because there's a fear of being able to come out there and speak. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately, though, um, you know, it's out there and there are, uh, you know, a lot of people there. There is still, unfortunately, there is a stigma. Uh, um, you know, actually, uh, I know because people have told me, oh, so and so doesn't like you because of what you're involved in. And I said, oh, OK, OK, uh, but maybe, you know, some <laughs> right. someday uh, she'll be calling me up and asking me what to do. So it's, you know, it, it's a re-education process. Yes. That's what it's all about. And uh, I think, um, you know, they got to get away from the idea of, uh, you know, marijuana making you high uh, and, you know, you're stumbling around and you're dizzy and crazy and all that and realizing the medicinal side. And, yeah. and, and that's very hard for people to make that change. But you know, where the, the market that I think that's really interesting is the market uh, uh, of people who are 50 years and older, um, because a lot, of, a lot of people, for example, uh, in that age range have pain, whether it's a pain you know, in their neck or they've got, uh, you know, they've got pa pain, pain somewhere pain. Yeah. in their body. And, um, and uh, they're start they're starting to come around. I think I think uh, uh, the market is definitely going to growing as 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 the population ages. Well, because the most important thing with the industry is that well, there's so many products being done that are not ingested by mouth. They're not they're just not smokable. They're not the flowers. There's so many more when it comes to edibles, when it comes to vapes, when it comes to various creams, topicals, bombs, salves, things like that that are. It's another form. So I think that's where the stigma comes from is that it's really it's somebody smoking it and feeling like it's the same kind of or well, first of all, it's the same effect that tobacco would give. And then the uh, the entourage effect where an alcohol would give the same kind of feel. That is where the stigma comes in. And so they, you know, media has done a long time. They've done a very a good job, unfortunately, at being able to keep that stigma so strong and all the hit pieces that come out on a regular basis. It's a shame. But now, to fight back, what could what could be done better? Because I think there's not a lot of spokespeople out there. When okay, so when you had the issue when it came to gun safety and and for gun ownership, you were the person always when, when someone one major entity wanted to call you, network cable, whatever. If they wanted to have somebody come on and talk about it, and would give you know obviously would be strong and, and take on a tough debate. They called on you. Don't we need someone like that in the cannabis industry? Because every time I see somebody going on to like a Fox News or a CNN and MSNBC, there are always these people that, you know, they can easily be dissuaded and distracted and they lose the argument every time because they're not properly prepared and they're not able to go ahead and counteract what is a manipulation by the media that's already going to be given before they even get to say a word. Well, I think 
number one, uh, we need more so-called uh, public figures to come out uh, <laughs> yeah. for it. And especially if they can say, you know, I, I didn't want to use it, but I tried it because of pain. I can tell you, uh, you know, recently, because I've been weightlifting and I ended up with, with too much weight going, uh, my neck went out. Oh. And I said, ah, I'm going to try CBD. Uh, and I tried a CBD balm and um, you know, rubbing it in, putting a little heat on it. And I got to tell, I got to tell you, I don't have that anymore. Now, it took a while. It's not an, oh, see, the problem is that sometimes, you know, CBD um, or, or whether you have a little THC in it or whatever, it, 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 can, it doesn't, it's not magic that it's going to happen overnight that your pain is going to go away or what other, what, whatever problem is. There's a process. And so my pain gradually went away. And then all of a sudden I realized, hey, my neck doesn't hurt anymore. That's amazing. You know, so so you, you know you, you, you have to have you know people who are are knowledgeable are known out there uh, to to come out and and say hey it, it it works for me. No, and not even that, but the level of involvement that you have done in other industries, and what you've done where you've written about it, you've you know you've trained, you've consulted, you've gone so many different avenues. Like, we need people that are multifaceted. We need a Paxton Quigley-type person for this era of cannabis, and more like that because that is exactly what we need. We need somebody that can say that they can go ahead and go down chapter and verse. Well, I worked on this. I went and did this. I know about this. I spoke to these people. I learned about this research. I know it from personal experience as well. We don't have anybody that speaks out for the community like that, and I think that would counteract the entire argument and tumble any mainstream media press that's out there about it. I think that's well, absolutely that's, true. that's what we're, that's, that's what cannabis radio is trying to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it, it just, unfortunately, it's, it's going to take a, a little more time than, than we thought about it. Yeah, that's, the, that's the goal the coast, situation. The, the goalposts keep moving, absolutely. So I got to ask you this. Okay, well, go on another hour, Paxton. We know that. We've talked many times off air after we've done interviews, and we could go for an hour, or more than a half hour, an hour, and just keep going at it. But I'll tell you this. Um, I think what I'd really love to go and close this interview out with is I'd love to get some wisdom from you from your story career. What are some of the, thing, what, what are some of the things that you learned from what you've done that the cannabis industry can learn from your experience? Maybe there's one thing that you say this industry would learn if they learned what I learned. What I learned, because um, I've smoked marijuana and I only thought of it as getting high, uh, if, if we could somehow get away from just that uh, 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 statement uh, and, and start really talking about it in, in, in pharmaceutical terms, uh, that it can help people get better and even have examples of that, whether it's some young child uh, that is suffering from some horrible disease and, and, and uh, uh, cannabis has helped them, the CBD has helped them. Um, we, we need more examples of people standing up and saying, yes, it helped me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm now not, uh, I can get out of, out of my chair and walk around and before I couldn't. Yeah. It's got to be something strong like that. 
And uh, whether it's somebody who is a, you know, 20 year old or a 50 year old or a, an 80 year old. We well, need, yeah. need that, that kind of, 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 of people. And that comes from advertising. And unfortunately, there's not enough advertising uh, either on the radio uh, nor nor on, on on television or any other outlets, and it, as long as it's it's kept you know in this little bubble that we're we're in, and if we can't break the bubble and get out, uh, it's just going to take longer and longer and longer for people to learn the positive sides of what of of, of what cannabis can do. Who's going to heed the call? Who's going to take this by the horns and say, okay? I'm going to jump in. I don't care, you know, the repercussions that come in, damn the repercussions. I'm going to go ahead and do follow the example of what our guest Pax the Quizley's done, who's hosted this program. And I hope there are those people that are that are listening right now that say, "You know what? I want to make that call. I want to go ahead and reach out to the show and see if we could talk about making this discussion and see if we could try to bridge this gap." Get something together, an alliance that will create this and make this possible. Because I agree right now, that is what this industry needs wholeheartedly. And I really appreciate the opportunity to spend this hour with you to go ahead and learn about what you've done. Because I think this perspective truly opens a lot of people's eyes as to why you're doing this show and why you're you're a pillar for this industry and I, I i am grateful for what you do for this industry i'm grateful you've been on cannabis radio with us and you know i i can only hope to continue to work with you for years to come because i enjoy wholeheartedly working with you and marine i've loved the experience thank you and and and, and both marine and i have loved the experience too for for certainly for you know i i can't even uh, describe it uh, probably in, in all the work that I've done in my life, uh, I feel that this is the best, really the best. <laughs> so as we wrap things up, I, I, if I can go ahead and use some of the words you normally use to close out the show. Uh, of course, remember, all the books, uh, when it comes to the best-selling self-defense book series, you can find it all on Amazon, all, all the major bookstores online, Armed and Female, and the novel Just Try Me. Go look for it right now. Kindle or paperback, you can go and order it right now. And most importantly, I know you always talk about this when it comes to us getting out of the pandemic, the importance of getting vaccinated. If masks are mandated, to use them, and that we'll overcome this virus together. And so, Paxton, I agree with you. Thanks so much for being on, and all the best to you and yours. And the same to you and to your family. All right, and we'll talk Thank to you. all of you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.